Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Patients with acute and acute on chronic liver failure are at high risk of developing critical illness. The unique pathophysiology of liver disease related to critical illness presents a series of challenges to clinicians. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss highlights of the guidelines for the management of adult acute and acute on chronic liver failure in the ICU, cardiovascular, endocrine, hematologic, pulmonary, and renal considerations. This guideline was released earlier this year and was produced by a panel of 29 members with expertise in aspects of care of the critically ill patient with liver failure and or the methodology for evidence-based medicine guideline development. We will focus on recommendations for management of acute on chronic liver failure patients in the general ICU setting. Our guest is Dr. Rahul Nanchal. Dr. Nanchal is a practicing critical care physician with an interest and expertise in liver disease. He is a professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Dr. Nancho is a recognized clinician, educator, and has a long list of publications. He is the lead author and co-chair of the guideline for the management of adult acute and acute on chronic liver failure in the ICU. This is the guideline we'll be discussing today. Rahul, welcome to Critical Matters. Thanks, Sergio. Thanks for uh, having me. Uh, I really appreciate it. So we talked about doing this podcast back in February in SECM, and uh, obviously a lot has happened since then, but I'm happy that we're finally getting you to do this. And I know that right now in your institution, in your state, you are very busy with COVID. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about a non-COVID issue, which I think might be refreshing for both us and our audience. Yeah, no worries, Sergio. I'm happy to talk about uh, something different than COVID for, you know, for once. I would like to start with some basic definitions to put things in context, Rahul, and maybe if you could just define very succinctly and from a general clinical perspective, what do we mean by acute liver failure, chronic liver failure, and acute on chronic liver failure? Okay, so uh, you know, it's, uh, so the, uh, great question. So acute liver failure is a uh, is you know basically liver dysfunction that occurs in a normal liver so that's important so you know the liver is normal and uh, you know there is an insult such as uh, maybe tylenol maybe a virus uh, you know maybe something else uh, and the liver fails and what by the you know what we what what i mean by the liver failing is that the synthetic function of the liver is affected and there is development of hepatic encephalopathy now if the development of hepatic encephalopathy is within about 24 to 26 weeks of the in initial insult of, to the liver, that is termed as acute liver failure. Now, the, the important thing is that, uh, you know, it the, the insult occurs again, like I said, in a pre-existing normal liver. So, so, so the liver is normal. So that's acute liver failure. So chronic liver failure is this, uh, as you know, you know, is this sort of, uh, the process that you know sort of destroys liver cells and there is regeneration and uh, you know and you know eventually fibrosis and uh, you know the eventual manifestation is cirrhosis. So that is chronic liver failure and the hepatic encephalopathy that sets in you know in chronic liver failure is way beyond the 26 28 weeks of uh, of acute liver failure and it is sort of sort of a uh, you know a slow process. Uh, you know that affects the livers usually usually takes many many months and you know even years years to develop acute on chronic liver failure is a little more uh, is a little more controversial uh, topic you know we have known about this i think the the entity was first described uh, in the earlier part of the decade and uh, th there are still uh, controversies surrounding it and uh, and the definitions are you know, still a little bit controversial because there are groups that have come out with there are at least four groups that have come out with uh, uh, you know with, with with sort of their own definitions but very simply acute on chronic liver failure occurs in the context of pre-existing liver disease so in it, it it occurs in the context of chronic liver disease there is an acute superimposed 
insult that leads to organ failure. So chronic liver disease, acute insult, and organ failure, that is the basic definition of acute on chronic liver failure. And I think the, again, the cardinal manifestations or the three cardinal things that happen in acute, acute on chronic liver failure is this intense inflammatory response syndrome as a result of you know, some inciting event and the various organ failures that occur. It's important to, to emphasize, absolutely, Rahu, and I think it's important to emphasize that for most of our listeners who work in ICUs, it's the acute and chronic liver failure patient that they encounter on a regular basis. That's the most common encounter in the ICU, where they come with primary um, liver problems causing the organ failure or some other uh, critical illness that impacts the, the liver, and that's what we're going to talk about today in more detail. Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, answer the Acute liver failure is actually a, you know, sort of a very rare disease. You know, it is not very common, and one could even call it an orphan disease. In terms of acute and chronic liver failure, Rahul, could you give us a little bit of a, a context of some, uh, you talked about the definition and how there's varying definition, but gave us an overall idea of what we mean by that. But what are some of the problems uh, in these patients that ultimately lead to an ICU admission? And what are some, perhaps, some of the, the common mistakes in management or misconceptions that intensivists might have related to these patients? Uh, you know, I think I, I, there are a couple of things that I would like to, you know, emphasize. So, you know, first of all, there, there is, you know, something happens. It could be either a hepatic insult or an extrahepatic insult. So, you know, a hepatic insult is uh, someone with pre-existing liver disease uh, took a bunch of alcohol. And so... Uh, you know, and had, and that's a, you know, sort of a hepatic result or for some reason got ischemia of the liver, you know, again, you know, that's a hepatic insult. Uh, more commonly, you know, people get a UTI or SVP, uh, some sort of infection or a GI bleed. And, you know, that sort of sets off a cascade of events uh, that leads to severe inflammation and then leads to organ failure. So one of the things is that, uh, you know, once uh, these organ failures start uh, occurring, it is very, very essential that we recognize, uh, you know, the, the uh, we recognize the entity because, you know, sometimes it's elusive. So, for example, uh, if you look at the uh, European Consortium or ESL or the European Association for Study of Liver Diseases, where this entity was, uh, you know, sort of the acute and chronic liver failure was first described, uh, in that cohort, the most important, the most uh, common organ to fail was the kidney. Uh, now, you know, how do we measure kidney function? By, you know, usually people do it by measuring creatinine. And uh, we, uh, we uh, all of us know that in liver disease, uh, you know, there is less hepatic production of creatinine, which is the precursor of creatinine. The, you know, liver mass, is, the muscle mass is decreased. Uh, you know there is there are there is malnourishment problems and so the, so usually creatinines are not very high and so someone might look at a creatinine of 0.6 or 0.7 and say hey oh that's normal and uh, and sort of not realize that you know their baseline creatinine is 0.3 and the creatinines actually doubled doubled and their GFR is halved and uh, you know there right there is a recognition problem and so that's one of the things that you know we we uh, that, that, you know, needs to occur uh, very expeditiously because, again, the longer you, the longer you leave someone without treatment, uh, the, uh, you know, the worse the outcome is. The second part of this is that the insult that, that there should be a, uh, uh, a search, a thorough search for the insult that is leading to acute and chronic liver failure because it is important to treat that. Uh, so, again, if you looked at the European cohort, uh, there were about 22% of patients were admitted with acute and chronic liver failure, but uh, you know about 10% of people actually developed it, you know, a short time, 24, 48 hours into the hospital, and so uh, and that was you know likely because you know someone missed SPP or someone missed uh, UTI or something of that nature that was leading to decompensation or leading to you know sort of organ failures and acute and chronic liver failure. So that's very important. And the third thing that I would like to emphasize is that this is recoverable you know so you, an insult happens people get into organ failure but it doesn't like you get into organ failure you can't recover i mean you know you can't 
the uh, many of these cases are recoverable and you know and you you get back to sort of you know you have this downward spiral and then you get back to where you were at baseline and uh, and so prognostication should not occur uh, right at day one when the organ failures are, or you diagnose acute on chronic liver failure actually prognostication is much better if you do it you know a week and week after all of this occurs so i think those are some of the important things that uh, uh, that uh, th that uh, we need to realize, and I think the fourth thing for you know places that don't have uh, liver transplant centers is early referral to centers that do do liver transplantation, because there is you know more and more sort of data emerging that uh, you know traditional scores like uh, the MELD score or the MELD sodium score are sort of underestimate the risk of mortality for these people with acute on liver you know acute on chronic liver failure because of all of their organ failures and so on and so forth. So what I'm hearing, uh, Rahul, is a lot of important aspects that maybe the general intensivist who's not really uh, involved with uh, acute liver failure and acute and chronic liver failure might overlook and might lead to almost like a circular thinking that leads to a nihilistic approach and a self-fulfilling prophecy that we don't recognize early organ failure. We don't look aggressively for the cause of that acute and chronic liver failure. And that leads us to believe that there's nothing we really can do for these patients. We prognosticate too early. And at the end, we really are doing a great disservice to these patients by either not treating aggressively their acute organ failure that can be reverted, or by not um, giving them the appropriate referral and evaluation for perhaps more definitive therapy like a liver transplant. Uh, exactly, Sergio. Excellent. Like I said at the beginning, we're going to focus a lot around the document that you co-chaired with the guidelines committee. But before we dive into the management recommendations, perhaps you could give us a list, very general brief high-level overview of the guideline process. But also, I'm very interested in if you could just clarify for everybody to understand what's the difference between it and the strength of recommendation between a strong recommendation and a conditional recommendation from the perspective of the clinician, the patient, and maybe even policymakers? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I, I think, you know, that is the, that, that is a fantastic question, Sergio. And that, that's, that, that's probably, uh, you know, something that we tried to clarify in the document. And hopefully, you know, talking to you, uh, you know, on the podcast, uh, this is something that, uh, you know, I, I can spend a few minutes on and uh, sort of uh, clarify. So the overall process was, uh, you know, we proposed a topic. I think uh, my co-chairs and I were really interested in uh, in developing some sort of uh, document or guidelines that would be of benefit to the general leadership uh, or readership, especially you know people in community hospitals uh, and people who see liver disease on a on a regular basis. Uh, and we when we pitched the idea to SCCM, who were uh, you know who were interested as well and uh, and then we uh, and we were appointed chairs, and then we selected our committee. And we and since liver failure sort of affects every organ of the body, we thought it was important that we were, that we not only selected people who were experts in liver disease, but we we selected people who were experts in, for example, you know, the cardiovascular system or you know or the renal system, so that uh, you know, so we sort of had a combination of people who were experts in liver disease and you know experts in their field so to to sort of formulate the best questions and the best uh, recommendations uh, and, and then um, uh, we uh, selected a few methodologists from the guide group and you know from canada and uh, and you know and the our methodology chair was you know as you know walid al hazani uh, was just a wonderful wonderful person uh, and you know, after we had gotten the panel together, we we sort of divided the panel into you know nine groups by organ system, and then appointed a leader for each of these nine groups, and then asked the group to develop questions that they thought were really important to answer. And we asked them to develop questions in the PICO format, which is population intervention, control, and outcome. And these are you know sort of uh, one should sort of really try and develop questions in this format because you know, they are, this is the final scientific method of you know sort of developing a question that then you can look up evidence and and, and sort of you know try and answer the question. Uh, after we had developed the question uh, and sort of decided on what were 
priority outcomes. We uh, enlisted the help of a librarian here at the Medical College of Wisconsin, where I am, uh, you know, to do, lit to do literature searches and, uh, you know, we searched several databases for relevant uh, papers to the question, went through, and, uh, you know, sort of went, went through the process of, you know, sort of selecting the papers, selecting the, uh, you know, selecting articles that were, uh, that were pertinent. And after we had selected uh, articles that were pertinent, we, uh, you know, sort of abstracted their data, did a risk of bias assessment, summarized the evidence. This was all with the help of the of our methodologists. Uh, the evidence was summarized using, you know, general meta-analytic techniques. And I don't think we need to get into, you know, what those meta-analytic techniques were. But I do want to uh, uh, sort of get into a little bit about how we formulated our recommendations. So for formulations of the, for the formulation of a recommendation, we use something called the grade process. Now the grade process is the grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation. And this approach involves principles that are guided by assessment of the quality of evidence, which is rated from high to very low. Okay, and the it is the quality of evidence that actually determines what the strength of our recommendations is, along with you know some of the other things that I will uh, describe. So the uh, the uh, quality of evidence is based on uh, six domains. Okay, the six domains are risk of bias, inconsistency, indirectness, uh, imprecision, publication bias, and you know I think there are some other uh, other criteria. And again, we the panel members worked very very closely with the methodologist on uh, sort of uh, of with, with the great process and the development of recommendations after you know we we use something called an evidence to decision framework uh, after we had you know sort of rated the evidence to uh, to go from quality of evidence to the final recommendation okay and we graded our recommendations as strong or conditional okay and if it was a strong recommendation we use the language we recommend if it was a conditional recommendation we use the language we suggest okay a strong recommendation is something that we favor so it you know it is in favor of the intervention or not in favor of the intervention but it reflects desirable effects of adherence and it reflects that the effects the desirable effects clearly outweigh the undesirable effects okay and that it would that this recommendation would be acceptable for most patients and that it would be acceptable for most clinicians and they would use it in most situations but Sergio, it's important to remember that a strong recommendation does not imply a standard of care it really doesn't mean that you know if you're if you're making a strong a strong recommend uh, recommendation uh, you absolutely ha have to follow it to the t and it is with a standard of care there are circumstances where you want you may want to to deviate from the recommendation okay mm -hmm. a conditional recommendation reflects that the if you adhere to it that the desirable effects probably may outweigh the undesirable effects but the confidence in the in our recommendation is diminished because you know either the quality of evidence is not good enough or that the risks and benefits are you know more closely balanced than they should be and the and then we anticipate that you know while the rec recommendation will is relevant in most patient settings but it is really heavily going to be influenced by clinical circumstances and the individual situation and personalization of this to the uh, uh, you know to to the individual patient and strong recommendations are, and we never make a strong re recommendation if the quality of evidence is uh, you know is low now as it relates to clinicians i think you had asked a question of you know how it relates to uh, how this relates to clinicians how it relates to policy makers and how it uh, relates to uh, patients which are all our stakeholders so for patients strong recommendations uh, you know most patients we believe would want if we make a strong recommendation would want the intervention if for the same you know for patients if we make a conditional recommendation uh, the yeah, uh, the majority of them would would probably want it but you know many would not for clinicians you know it's the same thing most clinicians we make a for strong recommendations there's enough evidence that most and the strength of the evidence is good enough where most uh, individuals would recommend the course of action in conditional recommendations 
you know, there are different choices. Like we've been led, like I had explained, you know, it's probably dictated by clinical circumstance. Uh, for policymakers, strong recommendations, uh, you know, can be adapted as policy in most situations. For uh, conditional recommendations, you know, there will be uh, substantial debate, and there has to be involvement of many stakeholders for policymakers before before they make a determination of whether to adopt the, you know, what is recommended or not. Uh, sorry, this was sort of a long-winded answer, but I think uh, you know it is. It was sort of important to clarify, you know, how people should. Uh, we got a lot of questions saying, well, you know, how could you, uh, how could you say this? And we were like, well, you know, we said it, but it is a conditional recommendation, and we did say that there was very low quality of evidence, which means that you know you you guys are free to do what you want in clinical, in, depending on clinical circumstances. From my perspective. I think this is a very valuable uh, discussion, obviously, because it gives the context of what we're going to discuss. But also, as somebody who works with a large number of programs, my approach would be that um, strong recommendations are things that we likely should be making sure that we do the majority of the time. So let's focus on making sure that when there's strong recommendations, that we are providing that to the majority of our patients, that we have processes to ensure that. Meaning yes. that it's not 100%, but it should be kind of what we do on a regular basis. And it's focused on the, that's what defines the floor of treatment. Conditional, like you said, are going to be much more uh, uh, applicable to the clinic, the clinician, the patient's preferences, and the exact situation, right? So yes. they're good to know. But again, like you said, as, as of where we stand right now with the evidence, these are suggestions, things that we should be thinking about but necessarily doing on a regular basis. And to that event, it seems that you have six, uh, I think there's six strong recommendations and we'll emphasize those um, at the end, but also the majority of the recommendations are gonna be conditional because uh, not only we don't have tremendous amount of uh, studies for all these questions, but it's also hard to find questions, uh, uh, questions that are answered in trials specifically looking at acute and chronic liver failure patients, correct? Yeah, that's, so that's that's correct, uh, Sergio. And you know, and and that was so the document had a lot of questions, and most of them were conditional recommendations for exactly the reasons that you described. You know, a it is very hard to find randomized controlled trials just on you know uh, patients with uh, liver failure or acute on chronic liver failure or acute liver failure for that you know that matter. And then uh, you know then the, then the evidence becomes indirect because then you're uh, you know so for example there is evidence from uh, you know sepsis, but a lot of those trials excluded patients with liver failure. So now you're or or the number of people who were included with liver failure was really small, and so now you're left with you know indirect evidence, and you're left scratching your head as to whether this is applicable to uh, you know to these patients or not. And and while you think that physiologically this may be applicable, you know you are you really can't make a strong recommendation. And now we realize that there may be situations where uh, you know you may have to sort of uh, think about doing it but you know also individualize it to the to the clinical circumstance and to the uh, you know to the patient that you're treating excellent with that out of the way let's dive into the management recommendations and i would like to start with the cardiovascular considerations sure uh, tell us a little bit about fluid resuscitation and uh, the role of hydroxyethyl starch gelatin solutions and albumin Okay, so uh, so you know so the uh, so let let me talk about the, uh, the the one that is easier first, which is the hydroxyethyl starch and gelatins, and then maybe we can talk about uh, you know we can sort of talk about albumin, and uh, I would like to get your thoughts on this as well, uh, Sergio, since uh, you know this, I, I like this style of podcast, which is very you know very conversational. So. Uh, you know, so it was uh, you know although there were. Uh, not there are so again randomized controlled trials comparing resuscitation fluids now we are talking about you know people in shock right so we are we are talking about okay you know there's someone in shock or someone who's hypovolemic and now we are uh, we are thinking about what best resuscitation fluid to give you know a patient so randomized controlled trials of resuscitation fluids in acute liver failure or acute on chronic liver failure are actually absent so you know there is nothing that there is no randomized controlled trial of uh, you know dealing with liver failure and if you look at you know the randomized controlled trials of you know resuscitation fluids in general uh, you know many trials again like we had discussed had uh, you know liver failure as a exclusion 
or had or had incredibly low numbers of people that had uh, that had liver failure you know having said that if you look at meta analyses of uh, you know really really large trials it is we we are you know we are pretty certain that hydroxyethyl starch is probably harmful and so we sort of issued a strong recommendation saying that you know we probably shouldn't sure you know uh, it, it is liver disease but i think the renal failure effects of for example you know hydroxyethyl starch in someone who already is predisposed to acute kidney injury you know from just from their basic pathophysiology and hepatorenal syndrome it's probably not a good idea to give them hydroxyethyl starch so that was I, i don't think there was a lot of debate and that was i think an easy one for the group saying yes you know we should recommend against the use of uh, hydroxyethyl starch Uh, and similarly for gelatins although the you know quality of evidence is not uh, you know not as good as uh, as hydroxyethyl starch uh, you know i i think we we said you know a conditional recommendation that you know we we suggest that we don't use uh, gelatin solutions for the uh, initial resuscitation of these patients now albumin was a little bit more uh, a little bit more controversial and so i think the 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 panel probably i'll, I'll describe to you the uh, you know what what went through the panel's mind uh, when they were issuing this recommendation so uh, we know that uh, if albumin is used for sbp it is helpful uh, you know all that was not compared to you know it was compared to nothing but you know but, but regardless it was you know it was helpful we know that if it is used for post paracentesis circulatory dysfunction it is helpful okay uh, we also know that albumin has uh, you know albumin metabolism and the levels of albumin and you know the quality of albumin is uh, affected in liver disease in the sense that you know the albumin molecule is sort of oxidized and things of that nature it is not you know it is it, it, its properties are changed and that albumin also has other physiological effects just you know other than just volume expansion especially in especially in liver disease and you know there is some evidence to that and uh, although and then there is a, you know there was a the meta analyses have not shown uh, although the meta analyses have in general critically ill patients have not shown benefits of albumin uh, to crystalloid patients for example in sepsis but the albios trial which uh, uh you know did show that the mortality of uh, with albumin replacement if the level was less than 3 was uh, you know sort of uh, decreased and uh, if the patient had septic shock and so when we combined uh, you know the beneficial the physiological beneficial effects of albumin and the uh, effects in post uh, paracentesis circulatory dysfunction and in the effects of sbp uh, we made a conditional recommendation saying that you should consider the use of albumin in patients as initial resuscitation toward in uh, patients with alf or aclf especially when the serum albumin is low now again uh, we did acknowledge that there was the evidence was indirect and therefore very low quality and it was a conditional recommendation but i think the panel sort of felt that given you know all of this all of the physiological beneficial effects of albumin especially in liver disease and some states where it is helpful that the that a guidance of you know perhaps it should be considered in the correct circumstance should be you know sort of issued so that was our uh, you know that was our rationale of sort of uh, of uh, of making this recommendation from my perspective uh, the way i've always looked at at fluids and resuscitation has been that we initially have uh, accepted that crystalloids and colloids uh, like albumin specifically were perhaps and there was not superiority between them however albumin might be more expensive now we've evolved to believe that within crystalloids balanced solutions are probably better than unbalanced solutions or just i mean normal saline yes. so we moved to those balanced solutions but i've always felt like you said that within a lot of these trials there's been signals towards the liver patients and uh, the way i approach it at the bedside is 
it's a conditional, uh, let's say, approach in terms that in some patients I would consider it, especially in liver patients. I think that's the best patient to consider it as part of the resuscitation, but it's part of another regimen of fluid. And like you said, um, maybe further data might uh, give us more clear uh, instructions on what's the best role of it. But like you said, I, I would say that from a clinical uh, practice perspective, I have used albumin in patients with liver disease who've been resuscitated. It's not the only fluid I use, and for many of the reasons that you had mentioned. So that's kind of what I would, what, the way I look at it right now. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, on Twitter, uh, especially on Twitter, we got, a, we got a lot of comments about, you know, making this recommendation. And, and while, uh, you know, while I understand, uh, I, I understand the lack of evidence, Sergio, uh, the, uh, I think in clinical practice in a lot of places, I do actually, like you have mentioned, see people, uh, you know, reach for albumin as a resuscitation fluid if it is someone who has underlying liver dysfunction. And, and there's, it's not, it's, and I would say uh, people confuse sometimes. There's no, it's not a lack of evidence. There's a lack of direct randomized trial evidence. Yeah. But like you said, there's other areas that when we try to put the available evidence together, suggest that there might be a, a, a possibility, and we know that it's not harmful. So when you take that into consideration, for some patients it might be appropriate. But we definitely would love to see better data. To, to maybe uh, delineate uh, the, the use of albumin in these patients in a much more precise way. Uh, you're right, I think, uh, you know, and that's one of the things that this, uh, probably this document highlights is that uh, this is a fertile area for research. That, uh, you know, there are not a lot, whole lot of, you know, high quality randomized controlled trials and, uh, and it isn't uncommon to see these patients. And so, you know, you, uh, there is opportunity to design uh, you know, great, well-controlled, randomized trials, you know, to test a lot of these hypotheses. Once we're done with fluids, we usually, if we still have issues, we will, like you said, go and grab a vasopressor. Can you share with us what is the vasopressor of choice and what are some recommendations that the panel made specifically around vasopressors? Yeah, so we had, uh, I think, uh, you know, like in all, you know, probably in uh, many of the shock states, the, uh, the the two uh, the, the two burning questions are what should the first line vasopressor be, and uh, after that, uh, should you? Uh, I think the, the big question that comes up is uh, should you add vasopressin to uh, you know to any of these uh, 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 to to the uh, to the first line vasopressor agent. And so we recommended that the uh, uh, first line uh, vasopressor in either acute liver failure or ACLF in people who remained hypotensive despite adequate fluid uh, resuscitation or in people who, uh, who were hypotensive and fluid resuscitation, but they had profound hypertension and, and fluid resuscitation was still ongoing. We recommended that norepinephrine be uh, uh, be utilized as the first line vasopressor. Now there was a specific reason for this. So again, I want to you know emphasize again, like you said, there is no direct randomized control, high quality uh, data in uh, in liver failure. You know, however, there is uh, data in a distributive physiology state, which is sepsis, and at baseline. You know, liver the liver disease patients have the same sort of distributive physiology because they're uh, vasodilated. There is arterial underfilling, and uh, so uh, we sort of extrapolated uh, the data that is available for uh, other vasodilated states, specifically sepsis, and uh, applied it to physiologically to the patients with liver disease and therefore this recommendation was a strong recommendation and you know we said we sort of downgraded the evidence because you know they were no and, and made it moderate quality because there were uh, you know again it was it was there was not direct applicability or there were no direct randomized controlled trials in uh, in liver disease uh, but you know, again, we extrapolated. Like I said, we extrapolated from the uh, severe sepsis uh, guidelines and uh, and sort of uh, said that norepinephrine 
should be the first line vasopressor uh, or, or or be extrapolated from severe sepsis and said okay or sepsis and said norepinephrine should be the first line vasopressor now uh, we were um, the uh, we didn't recommend we specifically did not recommend epinephrine because uh, epinephrine probably likely increases lactate production in in uh, skeletal muscle and there are there are already impairments of you know in, in, in people with liver disease there's already an impairment of lactate clearance and uh, a this we, we don't know what effects will have this will have and and this also may impair the the utility of uh, you know you sort of utilizing lactate clearance as a to guide therapy and so uh, you know and so so we didn't you know we didn't recommend that and we didn't, you know obviously there is a you know dopamine you know no one uses uses that anymore and so so we were left with sort of recommending uh, vasopressin as the first uh, sorry norepinephrine as the first line vasopressor and in terms of uh, uh, vasopressin again uh, no randomized controlled trials uh, but we did say that you could use low dose recommendation and this was again a, a conditional recommendation with low quality evidence in people who remained uh, hypotensive despite fluid resuscitation and despite uh, the addition of uh, uh, vasopressin and now the addition of vasopressin has to be sort of, I think, balanced with the risk of increased uh, digital ischemia. And uh, the uh, liver, liver specific data are very little. There is not very, very much out there. But there was in the meta-analysis there was a study that included cirrhotic patients and i just want to you know emphasize that the definitions of you know acute and chronic liver failure just came about you know in the last seven or eight years and so and this was an older trial that looked at cirrhotic patients and cirrhosis is sort of different from acute on chronic liver failure but uh, there was one study that was that included cirrhotic patients and the digital ischemia rates in that study were more with vasopressin but the uh, uh you know but but again so when you use vasopressin you just have to be careful that there is a study out in cirrhotics that that had more digital ischemia with vasopressin excellent i think it's worth emphasizing that from the cardiovascular uh, recommendations we already hit on two strong recommendations one against the use of hydroxyethyl starch as an initial fluid resuscitation and the second one is the recommendation of using norepinephrine as the first line vasopressor in patients with acute and chronic liver failure or acute liver failure who despite fluid are still uh, hypotensive. With that, I would like to move on to hematology, Rahul. Okay. And I think that this is a, obviously a fascinating area within a liver disease. And I think it's also an area where there's a lot of misconceptions. Yes. And uh, uh, clinicians in general feel that the risk of bleeding is higher than the risk of thrombotic complications in these patients. And perhaps that is not exactly true. Furthermore, clinicians tend to rely too much, I think, or over rely on the INR in these patients. And I would like to hear your thoughts on, in general, the assessment of bleeding and thrombosis risk in these patients, and uh, also in the assessment of bleeding risk for specifically for procedures. Sure. So great question, uh, you know, uh, Sergio. And this is one of my favorite things to talk about because I think the in the past decade and a half, the advances that have been made in the understanding of bleeding and coagulation in, uh, you know, especially in cirrhosis and chronic liver disease, have been remarkable. They have been just fascinating. And so, you know, initially, even two decades ago, even when I was, you know, sort of training in, in residency, you know, we used to measure these INR, all these the, the people with liver disease used to come in and they, sub, you know, they need a line or an arterial line or something of that nature. And, you know, everyone used to measure the INR or the or the prothrombin time and say, oh, the INR is, uh, you know, elevated. Well, you know, why don't you give FFP and, and bring the INR down to below a certain number? and uh you know and then you can you can do the procedure safely and that was the misconception and and what people did not realize is that the uh you know the inr is a 
sort of this test was developed specifically and only for vitamin K, K antagonists. You know, it was not developed for you know, people who have endogenous uh, states where INRs are elevated and, you know, and, and PTs are elevated. And what, uh, and what we have learned over, in, in, in very brief, what we have learned over the past several years in, in, in with studying coagulation profiles of you know many of these erotic patients and you know and, and many of the patients with liver failure is that there is this concept of rebalanced hemostasis that whether you look at platelet function whether you look at the coagulation cascade or whether you look at fibrinolysis that there are defects in both you know you know things that uh, so for example if you take platelets there are things that uh, cirrhosis is associated with thrombocytopenia and you know liver failure is associated with thrombocytopenia so we you would say well you know the uh, the ability to uh, to form a clot is decreased because there is thrombocytopenia but on the other hand the the, the liver failure is also increased uh, associated with increased factor 8 increased vulnerability factor and so it makes the platelet actually more sticky to collagen and similarly if you look at uh, you know the coagulation cascade there are defects in uh, you know two factors two seven nine ten one you know uh, I think factor one factor uh, eleven. However, levels of factor eight are increased, and concomitantly there is a decrease in uh, some of the anticoagulant proteins such as protein C and protein S, and sim and it is same for it is same for the fibrinolytic pathway. And so, in some in many instances, this uh, this rebalanced hemostasis leads to a, uh, a state where serotics, many serotics are actually even pro-thrombotic. They're not anticoagulant. Although in this, this concept of auto-anticoagulation is, you know, being dispelled and, and people with uh, liver failure actually may, may very well be pro-thrombotic and, you know, need, and, and that's why, you know, you see a lot of them develop portal vein thrombosis and, you know, and so, so on and so forth. And so what we have learned is that the use of INR and PT to assess for the risk of bleeding is actually not the correct way to uh, uh, you know to assess who would be uh, you know who who is at risk of bleeding and who is not. Uh, although there are uh, you know there, there is there is just one trial and you know I, I, maybe we'll we'll talk about it. But but uh, probably a correct way, a more valuable way of assessing uh, you know sort of the entire coagulation profile of a patient is to use viscoelastic testing, you know, something either TAG, which is thromboelastography or, you know, or, or ROTEM, which, is, which are sort of, sort of, you know, which are sort of not very different. Uh, it's basically a needle in a cup. In one test, the needle rotates. In another test, the cup rotates. Uh, uh, and, but they are probably better tests to measure, uh, to assess bleeding and, thromb, you know, thrombotic risks rather than traditional factors such as the INR or the uh, or the PT, PT or even just a you know just a normal play or just a usual platelet count and, and along these lines Rahul like like you mentioned it's the, the 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 new development or the better understanding now of a way to really assess this dynamic situation that you described in liver disease with either rotem or thromboelastography over using our usual parameters such as INR and platelet, uh, you made a, a strong recommendation um, for using this type of testing in assessing the risk of bleeding in patients who are undergoing procedures and surgery. Correct? Yes. So that was based on one randomized control trial. Uh, it was an open-label randomized control trial in of 60 patients in in, in cirrhosis who were uh, scheduled to undergo invasive procedure. And the blood transfusion was triggered by, uh, you know, either by by tags or by standard of care, guided by either the INR or the platelet count. And what really happened was that it resulted in many fewer patients being transfused. So, you know, only if you looked at the platelet count or uh, or the INR, 100% of the patients were transfused. If you did this by tag, only 16.7% or 16 or 17% of these patients were transfused. And there was, you know, no one, there was just one out of 60 people had bleeding. And that was the person who got, you know, who received a transfusion, who had a PTP, FFP transfusion uh, before a, uh, you know, before a paracentesis and was actually a local, probably a local mechanical complication and nothing to do with the, uh, you know, to the, uh, with the systemic state of what the INR was or what the, what the coagulation profile was. 
from a practical perspective, what I've seen is that clinicians um, over rely or over utilize the INR, assuming that there's a high risk and they probably over treat patients, which can have its own set of, of complications, not only adding cost to care, but can be associated with complications. So from, from what you're telling me, for most of the procedures that we would do in an ICU, like a paracentesis in these patients or putting in a central line or putting in an A line, even maybe sometimes a thoracentesis, the INR probably is, is not a great thing to, to look at. And the majority of these patients probably can have these procedures very safely without transfusions. Is that correct? That is exactly correct. And, uh, and paradoxically, if you do transfuse someone FFP, you may increase the portal, portal pressure and, and end up with a GI bleed. Which obviously defeats the whole purpose. Yeah. You also made a, a very strong recommendation or a strong recommendation, I should say, against the use of novel a platelet a stimulating factors such as ultramopab, and uh, a, can you make some comments on that? Yeah, sure. So you know, again, that that was uh, that, that was based on a um, uh, a trial of uh, again people who were scheduled to I think undergo procedures in about two weeks in uh, in uh, chronic liver disease, and they were given you know they all of them had thrombocytopenia, and these people had uh, received. Uh, Eltromopag, which is uh, which is uh, a thrombopoietin agonist, and while uh, their platelet counts went up, so did the thrombotic complications, and uh, especially the portal venous system. And you know, and this th this actually emphasizes the fact where you know, although you may have a low platelet count, if you truly look at you know how these uh, 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 platelets adhere to collagen. In many people, you know, they actually have more adherence to collagen, even though the platelet count is low. The, the, they actually adhere to collagen much better because of, you know, of increased factor eight, one valibrance factor, and things of that nature. And so, this pro this trial probably indirectly, you know, sort of corrob corroborates that, uh, you know, hypothesis, hypothesis. And that's why we made a strong recommendation saying, and this the trial that I'm talking about actually was stopped early because of these, uh, you know, portal venous thrombotic complications. And so, uh, therefore, we we had actually issued a strong recommendation against uh, use of, uh, you know, these agents in, uh, prior to surgery or, or, uh, or procedures. And, uh, you know, again, this, this goes back to the explosion of knowledge that has occurred in, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the of, uh, coagulopathy and assessment of bleeding risk in, uh, in, in patients with liver disease. Excellent. The other uh, topic that you mentioned, which I think is very relevant to our daily clinical practice, relates to hemoglobin targets. Uh, we have moved in the critical care world from a very aggressive threshold of transfusing people to keep their hemoglobins above 10 to really tolerating in the most critically ill patients a hemoglobin of 7 or above. Could you comment on the um, conclusion that the guidelines came to this topic? Yeah, so the uh, conclusion that the guidelines came to the uh, topic, and you know, this was a uh, uh, a general sort of okay, you know, what what should be the hemoglobin target in uh, critically ill people for uh, like any other general critically ill patient? What should be the hemoglobin target in people with ACLF and you know ALF? And again, we uh, sort of said the transfusion target should be uh, seven milligrams per deciliter and restrictive transfusion like we do in general critical care. And uh, this was sort of based on, uh, you know, the, as you very well know, you know, general critical care trials, like you have mentioned, the first one was the TRIC trial, you know, which, which was the first one to show that, uh, you know, a target of, of seven is, is is no worse than a target of nine, especially. And if you do a target, if you do target higher hemoglobins, you end up with more uh, more complications related uh, to the uh, transfusion. And if you you know sort of stratify those uh, you know so all of those for cirrhosis, uh, and it's the same thing. You know, restrictive transfusion is not significantly different to a uh, a, a liberal transfusion. Uh, and, and there is some, uh, you know, data in the post-liver transplant world where uh, red blood cell transfusions are an independent predictor of uh, mortality. 
uh, erythropoietin levels are already you know sort of increased in people with cirrhosis uh, you know they and it sort of correlates to the degree of uh, of uh, of portal hypertension uh, but uh, there is not a again again the our data lacks from a study of patients that are solely for, for acute liver failure and you know or or aclf and so the you know the the the, the recommendation was conditional uh, you know taking into account that you know you in the liver disease population where there are many many other uh, many other factors that may influence your decision making uh, you may want to you know sort of weigh in those other factors before you before you decide on hemoglobin targets excellent and the final uh, topic i wanted to touch on the hematologic front relates to dvt treatment and prophylaxis as we mentioned earlier rahul i think there's a common misconception uh, about a high inr meaning that these patients if anything are just prone to bleeding and that they're protected from from thrombotic complications but what we see clinically is that thrombotic complications where it be you know um, portal vein thrombosis or other deep vein thrombosis are actually more common or very common in these patients. Could you give us a little bit of an overview of how we should prophylax and treat these patients? And what are your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, again, when you grade the quality of, of evidence in terms of, so when we formulate these recommendations, you know, we follow a very strict grade process and, you know, and we rate the quality of evidence. And then, you know, if the, the quality of evidence in many of these things are downgraded if the trial is not randomized control, if it's an observational study, or if it is you know, indirect evidence. So there are lots of things that sort of downgrade the evidence. And so, so the evidence we found was not, you know, although there is there is there are all of these mechanistic insights available, the evidence that we found is not high quality. So we can't, you know, so we issued a conditional recommendation. But my thoughts are that many cirrhotics, paradoxically, are actually prothrombotic, and they should they should absolutely receive pharmacological DVT prophylaxis if able over, you know, over pneumatic stocking or over mechanical DVT prophylaxis. And uh, especially if they're, if they're hospitalized. And, uh, and understanding that there, there might be circumstances that, you know, you're not able to give, uh, give pharmacological DVT prophylaxis. But this is a, this is a big misconception, Sergio, because you know, even today, even in my even the place where I work, if you, if you look out on the floors with these uh, people who are admitted, you know, they they are often not receiving DVT prophylaxis because you know their INR is two or two and a half, and people don't realize that even with the INR of two two and a half, they're they are actually prothrombotic and not you know and not autoanticoagulated and should absolutely be receiving uh, you know pharmacological DVT prophylaxis. Again, an important point. There are other risk factors as well. So. Yeah, I think an important point that we have to emphasize because it's something that we commonly see in clinical practice. And I think it relates to those misconceptions we have about liver patients and not fully understanding the pathophysiology involved with these uh, hospitalized patients. Exactly. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound Critical Care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.